2: Mentally yours from Ellen and I Focus on your mental health, you surely won't regret it. It's mentally, 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 mentally yours. mentally yours. Mentally yours, mentally yours. Welcome back to Mentally Yours, Metro.couk's UK's weekly podcast about all things mental health. I'm Ellen.
0: And I'm Yvette. And this week, we're going to be chatting to Rebecca Seal. She's a journalist and a working from home expert. She's also the author of Solo How to Work Alone and Not Lose Your Mind. And she's also a podcaster. We're going to be chatting to her about all things working from home.
3: So, I actually had the idea in 2014. Um, because I was losing my mind. (laughs) Um, I've been working by myself mainly from home for about nearly 13 years now. And I just had got to a point back then sort of 2013, 2014, when I was outwardly by all the kind of traditional metrics, really successful. Um, I was on television every week um, on a, on a TV show called Sunday Brunch. Um, I had a column in the Evening Standard and another one in the Guardian and it all looked very sort of glossy and perfect. And I was making a decent amount of money, which is, um, an unusual experience for a freelance writer as well. Uh, not one that's continued, I have to say. <laughs> um, and, um, I, I just hit this wall. I just realized I was completely miserable. Um, everything I was doing was related to work. I was really neglecting the relationships in my life and I was working six, sometimes seven days a week and I couldn't quite work out how it all gone so wrong. Um, and I went looking for a book, not a kind of how to be a freelancer book in the sense that I could figure out how to do my taxes and, um, spreadsheets and that kind of thing. But I couldn't find anything that would help me work out how to be who I was trying to be. Um, and I will confess that writing a book as a way to solve your own burnout problems is a bad way (laughs) going about dealing with burnout um, because it's obviously quite a lot of work. And that's why it took me five years to get to a point where I could actually write it. So I wrote most of it in 2019 and then wrote the last few chapters in the first lockdown of 2020, um, at which point I started to realise that maybe this was a book that was going to talk to a different audience than the one that I had initially had in my mind. Um, Not that that changed the way that the book was written, but just that suddenly it was a much bigger thing than it had been when I had written it and I was just thinking of a few freelancers. You know, I kind of had, in my head, I had like a few hundred sales a year um, of people who were in my situation and that's it's turned out to be a slightly different thing than that, sadly.
2: Did you find the answers to your initial questions by writing it, because I think I, I don't know about you, but I would have been frustrated that I have to write this book and that it doesn't already exist.
3: Yeah, I was really frustrated. I mean, that was fundamentally the the, the kind of driving force behind it. I was I was frustrated and surprised because there are so many of us doing this stuff, and there is a lot more out there now than there was back in twenty fourteen. Um, so it's a, it's a slightly different landscape and I think our understanding in general of wellbeing and mental health is better than it has been probably ever. So I think that things are, things are improving quite steadily. Um, but yeah, I was, I was frustrated and I did find a lot of answers and I'm still finding answers through the book. Actually quite often I'll change the way I do something about how I work. And my husband who has read the book (laughs) will say, um, Oh, I see you're finally following your own advice. (laughs) And it's, you know, two or even three years after I've made a kind of technical discovery that I'm able to kind of grow enough to apply it to my own way of doing things. So it continues to it continues to be revelatory. And I think the fact that I now have a podcast um, called The Solo Collective, which is, again, all about having conversations around how we manage to work on our own, and cope with all the stuff around that, I think, that has also been kind of um, very useful for me and hopefully for other people. But <laughs> fundamentally, it's been really, really helpful for me to have these in-depth conversations with people about how to do this stuff. Um, and and I think as well, it's important to reflect that we are always a work in progress when we work by ourselves. I mean, this is true of careers in general, but um, you're never going to 100 percent nail the way that you do it and things will change in your life that mean you have to change the way that you work so it's a kind of ongoing process that's never really finished
0: what are some of the key bits of advice I'm not to kind of completely spoil your book (laughs) don't worry we'd love we'd love to get sort of some some tips and I'd love to get some tips to be honest this is just me wanting to get advice on to you know how how to do this whole thing better really but I'm sure lots of listeners will feel the same
3: yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's tons of things. So um, let's just squeeze in as many as we can. Um, so one of the things that I think quite a lot about are the spaces in which we work. Um, and I guess I'd like to preface this by saying, um, you know, there's been a bit of blowback about people Um, advising people to sit by a window when they do their work and things and and people saying, you know, that's not going to solve the mental health crisis. And that's true. It's not. These are small steps that we can take to bolster our kind of base level mental health. They're not going to solve massive problems like depression or the loss that we've all experienced to varying degrees um, during the pandemic. And I, I think it's important to say that I'm not trying to package this as though if you just move your desk everything will be fine. Um, There are lots and lots of incremental things that we can do, which make a kind of make a big difference in a kind of in the round. Um, But also it's hard to do them if you're feeling really stuck um, and you're feeling kind of mired in all of this stuff, then it's hard to make changes. And so making them gradually and um, slowly is a really, is a much better way of making habit changes stick rather than being like I'm going to change everything I'm totally going to change all the things that I do which is very much my way of doing things to so be kind of grand and faddy much and, same. yeah <laughs> do something that sort of stays around for like 48 hours or a week if you're really lucky but fundamentally just you go back to your old ways so um so baby steps is definitely a good way forward and and kind of having medium-sized expectations in terms of what they're going to do for you but um so yeah uh one of one of the things is um the space in which we work and obviously that can be really variable for different people I've worked on the kitchen table I've worked in my bedroom and um, I now I'm lucky enough to have an office but you know we're all trying to figure out our spaces in often quite difficult circumstances so um, things that you can do if that's the case yes move your working space near to a window that is a very that's a very important bit one of the problems with in fact modern day office design as much as working in your gloomy spare bedroom or in a basement flat is that we're deprived of natural light and natural light has a huge impact on our well-being in terms of the way that it governs both our circadian rhythms but also our ultradian rhythms which are the 90 minute peak and trough or roughly 90 minute peak and trough energy flows that we have during the day um and that's why most of us can't really work for longer than about 90 minutes without needing a break and a lot of us need a break much quicker much quicker than that um and so, if you allow yourself to have access to natural light, then those rhythms get governed much more naturally. You'll find that your sleep might improve; that it's easier for you to fall asleep and stay asleep, um, which obviously has a massive impact on how your day goes the next day. Um, but also, you might find that you need lef- less caffeine um, or no caffeine, and that also might help your well-being in general in terms of jitteriness. Um, and often, it can ha- help kind of smooth out the rhythms of how we eat. Um, we're not kind of grasping for sugar as an energy fix because our, our body's kind of hormonal rhythms are better governed by access to daylight and if you can't do that if you can't work near a window then getting out into the daylight in the morning and middle of the day or and or middle of the day is really useful as well um because again you just flood your system with daylight and all of the kind of hormone responses that your body has go off um in the right way so that's that's quite a big deal um I also Think that biophilic design is a really interesting thing to look into, which is about—I'm sure you've covered this on the podcast before—but it's all about how to um, bring the inside, uh, bring the inside out. No, bring the outside inside. Um, and so I have changed my setup. So I no longer work on a white plasticky IKEA desktop on a trestle. Um, I have a bit of sort of natural wood. It's really cheap. It was just a bit of um, birch ply, I think, that I got from a builder's merchant and put some varnish on. Um, but it's. It, I have natural textures and natural looks all around me. So wood, plants, I, I have a fleece, like a fleecy rug thing that goes over the back of my office chair. As many of those sort of hard edges and corners are softened. And I think one of the great things about working on your own and by your, um, and especially if you're working from home is that you can create your system, you can create your setup and it doesn't have to replicate the horrible cold, white, grey, shiny, black sort of office environment that many of us worked in. When we worked in offices, um you don't have to have everything chrome and kind of cold. And so that that can really help. Um, obviously plants are well documented as a way of kind of soothing the brain. The fractal patterns in leaves and foliage are really good for our brains. There's been quite a lot of research in how we find the soothing nature quite similar to listening to music. Um, so and you can, you know, surround yourself with scents that you love, with textures that you love, colours that you love, you know, you don't necessarily have to paint the walls but you could have a nice cushion that you really love the colors in um you know pictures of people you care about and if you can't be outside then you can have pictures uh, with the sky in on your walls or seascapes um all of those things have been shown really powerfully to have an impact on our well-being and levels of creativity and stress so kind of building that space for yourself is a really powerful thing and if you can't um if you can't have it up permanently then have a box with all the nice things in and all your work and hide it away at the end of the day one of the things which is really complicated about working in the same space that you live in is that often your work is really visible in the times when you're not supposed to be working it's an issue with smartphones as well that we all know and so if you can kind of segment things by hiding them and even if you throw a sheet over it that you know that is powerful too if you're working in your bedroom at the end of your working day, chuck a sheet over your computer if you can't put it away so that you're doing something symbolic and kind of emblematic for your brain that shows that it, that work is done and it can shift into the home mode of being rather than the work mode. Um, that you know I've, I've it just sounds like a really funny thing to advise people to do but I've advised a lot of people in workshops and talks to do it and the feedback I get is always like wow I didn't realize that that would really <laughs> that putting stuff in a box at the end of the day was going to be so powerful but it, it really is it's a small step that's quite sort of um, manageable to do um but I mean I don't know I could go on and on there's so many things in the book do you want to <laughs> you can drop. you can guide me in, in particular directions if you no, want rather
2: keep, than <laughs> honestly keep going okay <laughs> right, I'll just, I'll just stream of consciousness. <laughs> um I mean the
3: other thing that I think people um find useful is I mean we can talk until we're blue in the face about boundary setting um but it's really really hard to do and um if I'm totally honest it wasn't until I had kids and my boundaries were imposed upon me like that I have to do the school drop-off and school pickup and that kind of thing and I only get to work in certain bits of the day it wasn't until then that I really grasped like firstly how important they are and secondly actually how to have them certainly before when i was in my sort of more burned out state i was just working and working and working or messing about on the internet and then working at like 10 p.m to meet a deadline um and so if there are ways that you can create like a fluid structure because i think um more and more we're realizing that kind of micro routines and really rigid structures often just make us feel like failures because they're impossible to hold onto every day there's no such thing as a perfect routine that allows you to have the perfect working day you might have like an alchemical moment where that actually does happen but you won't be able to recreate it and you probably won't know why it happened (laughs) um but having a start point and an end point is really helpful um and if they can be bounded by some kind of requirement that you are somewhere else like a meeting with somebody or a class that you've got to attend or whatever then i i find that quite useful kind of imposed endings um And I find it really hard to start and really hard to stop once I've started. Um, So I fully identify with anybody who agrees with that. Um, I think having some rituals around where you start and, and or kind of creating them if you don't already have them is a really helpful thing to do. So for me, it's like two cups of, decaf coffee um after the second one it's it's you know symbolically time to start working if i'm still in the kitchen when woman's hour comes on i'm late you know i shouldn't (laughs) i love woman's hour but i shouldn't be listening to it um and that you know those kind of um those little flags in the day are really useful um i know other people who burn a candle when they're working and they blow it out symbolically when they finish in order to stop Um, I think that's really useful. I know somebody else I interviewed for my podcast. She cleans her desk at the end of her day. Um, kind of, she gives it like wipes it down, gets rid of any dust, tidies it all up, writes her list for the next morning. So there's a lot of symbolic activities that just say I'm done now. She actually rakes her carpet floor as well, like her, her office floor carpet, which I think is a step further than I (laughs) prepared to go to, but whatever, whatever it takes really to, to create closure um essentially I think is is really really
2: valuable I'm going to say something extremely offensive and basically compare your child (laughs) to my cat people do that all Um, the time don't worry it's fine (laughs) (laughs) but you'll you'll understand a second so basically what you said about you only really were able to set boundaries when you had a kid I had a very similar thing with getting a cat because I knew I had to actually start. It was a feral kitten. So I knew I had to leave work at a certain time to get home, feed the kitten, make sure she was getting socialized, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I feel like if I didn't have that kitten, I would not have had those kind of healthy leaving work on time moments. So for people who don't have babies or cats yeah then how get a dog how do you don't <laughs> get dogs don't get not my any basically any external other being that they prioritize how do you start prioritizing yourself and just going like no i need to leave because i need to leave not for another being if that makes sense
3: yeah i think that is more challenging um but it is doable. And I think that listening to conversations like this is actually part of it. Um, I I didn't know this at the time when I was writing the book, so it's not in the book, but for me, the thing that's convinced me more than anything to make positive changes in terms of how I work is reading and listening to other people make a convincing argument for the non-primacy of work in our lives. And, when you're exposed to that often enough, you do start to believe it, and it's it's hard to believe because our culture is so um, so built around work as a central part of our lives. Particularly if you're, you know, m- midlife. I'm forty now, but um, you know, I've been working on my own since my late twenties, um, and I think that we have a tendency to just place work in the center of our lives and in the center of our identities and i i personally have had to hear an awful lot of people say that that is mad (laughs) and extraordinary and not how humans have lived until very very recently Um, i have had to hear that a lot of times in order to start believing it and therefore changing the way that i run my life Um, so if you i think I don't know. I don't know if this would follow for everybody else. It would be interesting to get your perspectives, but um, I, that's what's worked for me. It's like this drip, drip, drip of we've got it wrong work as culturally we've got work wrong. We've put it in the center where it shouldn't be. And it hasn't ever been before. There are other parts of you that are more important and more interesting and more exciting and more valuable. Um, And there are other things that you could be doing with your precious, precious time, your short, short life. Um, And, that's it, it's hearing that that I have that's allowed me to make changes um and therefore do things like say no I'm only going to work like 28 hours a week or I'm going to do a four-day week or I'm going to have Tuesday afternoons I'm always going to be with my kids and we're just going to hang out and do nothing special um I think yeah I'd love to be able to say well what if you create this ritual this will work but I think it's actually about changing your mind really quite fundamentally. Um, and if you've got something which makes you do like that, like a cat or a dog, then brilliant. But I think it's probably even uh, my kid, my kids arriving was the kind of catalyst for all of this, but I was resentful. If I'm honest, I was resentful of the way that they took up my time and took it away from work until really quite recently. Um, I mean, I love them dearly. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I've really struggled with that, um, the tension between having work to do and having other stuff in my life to do. And it's, it's really recent where I've been able to say, The work's important, but other things are much more important, including my ability to be me as a a fully operative human, um, rather than just as a sort of worker bee.
2: (laughs) How do you feel about that? I'm interested because I think I'm very much still in the unhealthy stage of being like, no, my work is who I am (laughs) and like what Mm. I do. And I think I still need more convincing, essentially.
0: Mm. Yeah it's it's a tricky one really I mean and it, as you were sort of talking about that Rebecca I was kind of thinking yeah because it's one of these things that people often say nobody on their deathbed sort of says oh, I wish I'd worked longer hours I wish I'd worked harder you know it's it's always the opposite and, and we'll hear that I've heard it loads of times but you d- that doesn't really sink in certainly not to the extent that the way that you sort of brilliantly put it out just then about or people will talk about work-life balance, but they, you'll still kind of think, uh, well, work is like 50% of that balance, if that makes sense. But it really sounds like you're sort of, you know, taking it, moving it out of the picture sort of further. Um, yeah, if I'm honest, it's um, it's a scary one for me to think about because, yeah, through my 20s and 30s, I, I was very incredibly ambitious and sort of work focused and to the, de- to the detriment of sort of social life, personal life, all that sort of stuff. And now I'm 40 and I'm kind of, (laughs) yeah, sort of, to be honest, and it ended up in this sort of situation where I am happy with the work that I do, but I don't have the sort of drive that I used to when I was younger. You know what, actually, when you were sort of talking about that, I thought, yes, that's brilliant, but I'm sure I wouldn't be alone in sort of saying it's a bit scary actually to hear that because for me, if I don't have my work, then actually who am I now? Because I've Mm. invested so much time and energy into work and work being my identity, you know, if I'm not a journalist, what am I, who am I, Mm. probably sound really pretentious to say that. But um, that's kind of how I feel, you know, and also because I'm single, and I don't have kids and stuff. Yeah,
3: it is really scary. I was in exactly the same position as you when I left The Observer. I took uh, a year, almost six months, a year um, to make the decision to go freelance. Um, And with no sense that being freelance would actually result in being a freelance writer. You know, obviously, I was quite young, quite junior and quite, uncertain as to what my career would look like so there was every possibility that I was giving up being a journalist um and I I angsted over it so intensely for the entire time I mean my my now he was my boyfriend then my now husband it, you know he found it absolutely painful <laughs> there was one point where he was like I just can't talk about this anymore I just need you just have to make a decision it was like eight months of talking about it or something um but that was that that was fundamentally the problem it was like if I am not this who am I because I've put all of myself into this job. Um, and if I, if I don't, if I don't have that role anymore, I can't say I'm Rebecca Seale and I work at the observer, then who, who am I? Um, and it was really, it was really hard. It was a real lurch at that point. Um, you know, taking, taking the leap. And I think it took me quite a long time to figure out how to put myself together. And in fact, for the first six years of being freelance and working by myself, I didn't make the i didn't do any of that work i just um put all my energy into being rebecca seal the writer who writes for x y and z who does you know this and that and is on the telly and blah 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 and you know trying trying desperately to build up status through through titles um and it is scary it's really scary to think about that um not being the case anymore uh and i mean it's not that it's not the case i'm not free of it now i wouldn't say that i have figured it out and i'm zen and <laughs> you know i still i still chase status and i still um take a certain amount of self worth from my income and from the publications that i work for um i i think it's not it's not that it goes it's just that it's less essential to who i am um and i, I i've got a clearer sense of I don't know. I don't really know how to put it. I mean, I will say like, I've done quite a lot of therapy and I'm now working with a coach and I've written this book (laughs) and I've had this podcast. I've had like 24 conversations with global experts in how to cope with working alone (laughs) for the podcast. So, you know, I've done a lot of work and I still kind of find it quite confusing. Um, And I can't say that I'm like, it's done and I'm fine. And I've, you know, work is well, I just do my work, and I finish my day, and I waft off, and I don't take it with me, and my boundaries are all really well set. You know that would be really un, really dishonest if I were to suggest that that's how it is. I'm just, I'm further from that person who couldn't think of herself as anything except Rebecca Seals, a journalist. I'm further from that person than I was, but I'm not that far. <laughs> <laughs> to
2: get us um back from. These kind of massive questions, but like, <laughs> yeah. here we are, and more onto the specifics of um working alone. Mm. I'd be really interested knowing like how you deal with kind of loneliness because I think that's something that a lot of people experienced for the first time in the pandemic. Yeah, um, with working from home, they weren't having those kind of chats. They felt increasingly isolated. How do you recommend people deal with that?
3: Yeah, so loneliness is a really difficult one because the the very unfortunate aspect of loneliness is that the thing that you have to do in order to deal to get rid of loneliness is the hardest thing to do when you're lonely, which is to go and see other people and to connect with other people um and I think one of the interesting um side effects of the pandemic for some people and I think some of us are still learning this um is that you can be part of a community which isn't your workplace um I think. You know, a lot of people have discovered that their their local area has a WhatsApp group, or the street, or the block that they live in has a WhatsApp group, or or similar. Um, you know, I think people have connected at a more local level, um, it much better than we had historically when the majority of people were living and working in quite separate places. And for me, that's been quite amazing and revelatory because I live and work in one place (laughs) and I never really go anywhere Um, and so I've really loved the development of the community around where I am and I'm in suburban southeast London Um, so I think part of it is about finding and tapping into those existing communities. Um, One way that I found it really useful to think about loneliness was that if you can't think about dealing with your own loneliness or pushing away your own loneliness then maybe you can maybe you're better at thinking about it in terms of other people so everything that you do in order to stem your own loneliness is doing the same for somebody else's loneliness so every time you phone a friend their loneliness is being minimized too Um, every time you connect with a neighbor or talk to somebody in a shop you know you're you're putting down roots of your own but also for somebody else and you're enmeshing yourself in your community more and more. Um, and so I found that quite useful because I find I find it quite hard to do things which are sort of obviously and specifically for me and my well-being, but it's easier to do it for other people. Um, so I've, and I've had to make a really active decision that I want more friends locally and I want to be more connected into the community and try and do things to engineer that um, because I spent a lot of time being very, very lonely when I was initially working on my own. I mean, years of real intense loneliness um, and isolation and not really realizing that there were so many people really, really close by who are feeling exactly the same. So, I mean, it's, it's sort of obvious advice, but there are loads of networks for freelancers. There are loads of um, local groups, um, you know, virtual and real Uh you know there's one around near me called southeast london self-employed parents for example um which is like a small group that meet every few months um and you know it feels a bit i don't know i don't know if everyone else feels this way but i feel really awkward about kind of formal networking Mm i'm i'm sort of a bit crap (laughs) that kind of thing (laughs) um but the value of it can be so enormous but if you if you really don't want to do the formal stuff then I mean, for example, I had quite a lovely experience last week when a writer who I used to know quite well, but probably hadn't seen for six or seven years, um, emailed to say that she was now living fairly locally and would be like to meet for a coffee. And I sort of did that thing of like, I'm too busy. I have got far too much on. I can't possibly manage this. I've got to prepare for all these things and blah, blah, blah. And. I don't know where I found the kind of energy to be like, no, I'm actually going to make time for this. But we sat down and we talked and it was really lovely to see her. She's really great, but she also happened to completely by surprise, have loads of really great advice for a particular sticky problem that I've got in my work life at the moment, which I wasn't, wasn't why I went to see her or anything. So there's, there's all these unintended beneficial consequences that can happen from making these small connections. The other thing I would say about loneliness is really be wary of the trap of convenience because, the the convenience culture that we live in and i've stolen that word from oliver berkman that phrase um but uh convenient the convenience culture we live in teaches us to behave as though if something's convenient it's an automatic good and it's really convenient to buy your stamps online but it means you don't leave the house and it's really convenient to order your food to arrive at your front door but it means you don't go anywhere to get your food um and, and that you know that has all kinds of negative unintended consequences um and so i think it's just it's really important to to not kind of privilege the idea of time saving above all else because actually and there's there's scientific data that predates the pandemic on this the the well-being uplifts that you get from small social interactions like buying a coffee in person is huge it's really huge just making eye contact with other people in the street has been shown to improve people's well-being and mental health so Um, doing something because it's convenient and so apparently saves you time and allows you to work still harder for the 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 capitalist machine isn't necessarily an intrinsic good in and of itself and I think that that can be a really helpful thing to think about when it comes to loneliness
2: so this is goodbye
1: from mentally yours so go away
0: If you've been struggling with any of the issues we've been chatting about today, please give the Samaritans a ring on 116 123. You can also find them online at samaritans.org. You can find us online. We have a Twitter account, which is at MentallyYRS. And you can also join our lovely Facebook group, which is simply called Mentally Yours. See you next week.